We are going through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 12, verse 13, where Jesus talks politics. And because we follow Jesus, we're going to talk politics this morning. And I am very aware this is a volatile issue, and uh, the intent is not to make anybody nervous because we're already nervous, all of us, anxious. And we need God's wisdom. We need His guidance. We need uh, direction from His Word. So we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 13, whether you're in, on a phone or um, using uh, a, a book. Martin Luther, the great Reformation leader, said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And I don't want to flinch. And I really believe today politics has become the devil's playground. I'm going to turn 69 in December. That's almost seven decades of life. And I've never seen our country as divided, as partisan, and as bitter as it is now, except perhaps uh, for the 1960s. Uh, we are so uncivil. Everything is politicized. Uh, an evangelical pastor about a month ago said, you cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat. Another evangelical pastor two weeks ago said, you'd have to be an idiot this year to vote Republican. These are two Christian leaders that I respect, who love God, who love His Word, and they are on opposite ends of the political spectrum. And I think it's kind of a microcosm of our country right now. Uh, we all feel it, don't we? Anger and fear of consequences if this happens, or if this happens, or if that party gets in, or that party gets, gets in. And it's increasing every day. And as I said, everything seems to be politicized. Both parties demand absolute loyalty to their platform. And it just seems like it's us versus them. And this 24-hour news cycle is just stirring up so much more. And we're so quick to accuse and belittle. We have a cancel culture. We divide from each other. We are swimming as Christians in toxic political waters these days. My sister posted something on Facebook about President Trump. And a longtime friend, one of her closest friends, not only unfriended her, but blocked her on social media. Family gatherings have become this partisan kind of a fight, an argument, rather than a place of, of love and, and empathy and, and, and caring. So this morning, uh, my chief concern as we look at what Jesus said is not who wins on election day. I'm concerned where you stand in Christ. And I'm concerned about where our church is going to stand on election day and the days following it because ultimately is not, it is not about who you vote for and it's not about which party you align with. It's ultimately about having the heart of God and the mind of God toward everything in life, including things in politics. So I've got a question I want to start with. Can we look at what the Bible says and talk to each other about politics and at the end of the day still be family? 
still be brothers and sisters, friends? Can we be the kind of a church when we, where we can literally teach what the Bible says and step on toes of Republicans and step on toes of Democrats because the Bible does both of those? I think we can. I don't believe you're little-minded and your hearts are so little that you cannot hear what Jesus says. I believe we can do this. So let's dig in. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which was a coin that was used to pay this tax. It was equal to a working man's wage in, in a single day. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. There is so much in this text, I could preach till Wednesday, but I'm going to refrain. We're going to talk about the question of politics, the wisdom of Jesus, and the way forward. And that's what we all want, isn't it? The way forward. So let me pray, and we'll dig in. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your word, for the clarity of your word, for the accessibility of your word. Thank you for those who have lived to translate it to where we could understand it, those who literally have given their lives because they did that, for the multitude of people who make the word available to us in all kinds of ways. We give you thanks. So help us to hear clearly what the Holy Spirit is saying through the words of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that the end of this time together is the same result that they had then, and that is we marvel at your wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's the question of, of politics that, that is asked. Uh, verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And you could not find two more unlikely groups of people. This is kind of an unholy alliance. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Herodians were the liberals, speaking politically. The Pharisees wanted small government and less control. They were against Rome. The Herodians wanted larger government and more control. They were for Rome. And these two enemies, mortal enemies on polar opposites on the political spectrum, have come together because they see Jesus as a threat. And it's very clear, they want to trap him. So, verse 14. They came and said, Teacher, we know you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but teach the truth of God. You talk about smarmy. What this shows me is that flattery is not limited to any one generation, any one culture. Flatter someone to disarm them, to set them up uh, for a, a trap. 
And the ironic thing is what they say is absolutely true. Jesus does teach the way of truth. Jesus doesn't care about people's opinions. Jesus is not swayed by appearances. So here's the politically charged, emotionally charged question that they ask. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the Romans were in charge in Israel and they charged every Jewish male a poll tax equal to a working man's wages um, so that they could fund the troops that occupied Israel. And the Jews hated this poll tax. In fact, in AD 6, 6 AD, uh, there was this massive revolt against the Romans because of this tax, and the Romans violently put it down. And then 50 years after this, there's another massive revolt, and the Romans once again put it down. So the question is, should we pay this tax to support this corrupt, brutal government when God is our king? And these two groups of people who came to Jesus with this, it says they came to trap him, they worked really hard on this question because it did not matter what Jesus said. He was toast. He would lose. If he said, no, don't pay the tax, they'll turn him over to the Roman authorities for treason. Brand him as a revolutionary. If he says, yes, pay it, he'll lose public support. He'll betray his own people. And if he says, I don't know, or ignores the question, he's not God's Messiah. This is one of those heads I win, tails you lose deals. He loses the people or he loses his life. And behind the question they ask is a set of questions that Christians have wrestled with for 2,000 years. What does God have to do with government? What does faith have to do with politics? How does the church relate to the state? What does it mean to follow Jesus when everything is politicized? What should be our attitude toward corrupt public leaders, political leaders, and if you morally disagree with the government about its policies, should you pledge allegiance? Should you pay taxes? Should you give them your support? And as I said, Christians have wrestled with these things for 2,000 years. In the early days of Christianity, when Christians said, Jesus is Lord, that was not only a theological statement, that was a political statement because the Romans said, no, Caesar is Lord. And if you say, Jesus is Lord, they took your kids, they took your home, they took your job, they could take your life. At least they tortured you. It was a political statement they were making when they said, Jesus is Lord of our lives. Fast forward 300 years, the Roman Emperor Constantine up and says, I've become a Christian. And you imagine the shift. They go from being persecuted to now it's advantageous to be a Christian. And so now you've got not the, church, the state over the church, you've got the state kind of permitting the church. And as time went on, moving into the Middle Ages, the church actually took the role of the state and the Pope became a political as well as a religious leader. Fast forward to the 1600s, the Protestant Reformation, the Puritans come to America. And then fast forward to the early 20th century, the early 1900s, where Liberal Christians focused on what they called the social gospel, and conservative Christians kind of backed away and were concerned about saving souls. And then moved to the sexual revolution of the 1960s, and conservative Christians said, enough is enough, and the moral majority was formed 
with the purpose of taking back the country for Christ by putting together evangelical voting blocks. And now it's gone by the wayside. And what we have is a country that's bitterly divided, bitterly polarized. Um, and Christians have different responses to the question that Jesus was asking and the questions behind the question. Some Christians avoid politics and some Christians obsess over politics. Some Christians avoid politics. They have what I would call a privatized faith. My faith is intimate. My faith is between me and God. It's no one's business. And here's the problem with that. Faith in Christ is personal. It is not private. You see all through scriptures that if you follow Jesus, he will shape all of your life spiritually, relationally, financially, and politically. If you relate Jesus just to your spiritual life, he's not Lord. And you cannot completely avoid politics, not if you care for people. I mean, you end up ignoring some really important things like, and these things are dismissed as political, but they were biblical before they were political, things like race relations and immigration and the treatment of women and creation care and the economy and abortion and homosexuality and poverty. Those were biblical issues long before they became political issues. And some go the opposite direction. They obsess over politics and we all have that friend, right? And some of you are that friend. You got CNN or MSNBC or Fox News on 24 hours a day. And you post 17 times on social media every single day. And here's the danger. Many Christians have been hijacked by a political party and they don't even know it. Their allegiance is more to the party than to the Savior. And if you're at more at home in a political party than you are at church, you need to reorder your priorities. Because the answer is not to avoid politics or obsess over politics. It's not privatized faith and it's not politicized faith. It's the wisdom of Jesus. So let's look at what Jesus says. Verse 15. He says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. On the, and he, said, he asked the question, whose inscription, whose image is on that coin. You can still find these coins in museums. On the face of that coin, it says this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And Jesus holds the coin up as an object lesson. And in verse 17, he says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That is one of the most important passages that you will ever read. And notice what he does not say. He does not say, give to Caesar, period. He does not say government is the ultimate authority. You know, several years ago, in several states, the question was about homeschooling. Who owns the child? Who has authority over the child, a parent or the government? Just this last week, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., won a lawsuit against the mayor of Washington, D.C., because the mayor tried to define what a church is. And Capitol Hill said, a church must meet together for worship services. And they won the lawsuit. Jesus does not say, give to Caesar, period. 
And he does not say, give to God, period. He doesn't say, well, since God's the ultimate authority, there is no other legitimate authority. That's what the zealots said at the time of Jesus. They were these Jewish freedom fighters who did everything they could to bring down the Roman government because God was their king. Jesus does not say, give to Caesar because Caesar is God. There were Roman emperors who actually added to that little coin the phrase, Caesar who is God. Is a government official above the law? If he says he is or she says she is, she's taking the place of God. Jesus does not say Caesar is Caesar and God is God and never the twain shall meet. Jesus does not separate spiritual life from political life. He does not say, okay, uh, worship and prayer and church and Bible reading and Sunday that belongs to, to, to God and, and the government, uh, you can pay taxes and, and public life. That's, he does not draw a dividing line between them. What does he say? Bring me a coin. Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. All right, then you pay your taxes. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he's looking at men and women who bear the image of God. And he says to them, the money may belong to Caesar because his image is on it. You belong to God, heart and soul. And you give to God what is God's because the likeness of God is on you. And here's the point he's making. Some things belong to Caesar. Some things belong to the government. It all belongs to God. And we have an obligation to government, but our ultimate allegiance is to God. So I want to give you five things in the time that remain that seem to me to be a way forward for all of us to think biblically about how we're going to vote, how we view what all that we hear on the media. I'm going to give you five things, and, and I don't often do this. I probably should do it a great deal more, but I want to recommend a book to you. It's not a long book at all. It's written by David Platt, who pastors McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., right in the middle of, of much of the uh, confusion. And the book is called Before You Vote. Before You Vote. So some of the things that I'm going to say uh, I've taken from that book. Five things. Number one, five principles all drawn from this text, from this story. Number one, Christians are to be good citizens. I mean, what Jesus says here is absolutely stunning. It, can you imagine being a Christian somewhere in the Roman Empire and hearing this read and thinking, what? Caesar is immoral. He is pagan. They're killing babies. They're killing, they're, they're brutalizing women. The Roman army is violent and brutal. They're imprisoning Christians. They kill Jesus. And we're support, supposed to support them with our taxes. I mean, what Jesus says is absolutely amazing. What he's doing, actually, he's backing up in what I'll call a, a quick biblical theology of, of government. All government belongs to God. All governance belongs to God. He is the sovereign ruler of all of the universe. This world is not a democracy, and he is not up for re-election. He's the king, and he has entrusted some of his authority to government. Genesis 1.26 says, God says be, to the first couple, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over all of the earth. He's calling people to rule creation, and that is done through government, and do it on his behalf. Bring order out of chaos so people's lives can flourish. 
The purpose of government, and it's, government is God's good design for us. The purpose of government is, is to promote policies so that people can flourish, to restrain evil, and, and to protect people from harm. And we know we need government. I mean, history tells us people do terrible things. Communities do terrible things. The strong take advantage of, of the weak, and almost any government is better than anarchy. Even bad government is better than anarchy. And all through Scripture, God holds political leaders accountable and will judge them. God gives directions in Scripture about good political leaders. David's last, King David's last words from 2 Samuel 23, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the ground. You have a good political leader, people flourish under that leadership. Proverbs 14, 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah speaks to people who are already taken prisoner, they're refugees uh, uh, in Babylon, and he says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Some of you don't feel at home in our government right now. You don't feel at home in our country. Seek the welfare, says Scripture, of the place where you are, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The purpose of government, according to Scripture, is to bless people under its authority, and it only has power because God grants it power. Jesus stands before Pilate, and in John 19, Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And the longest section of Scripture dealing with our attitude toward government and government leaders is Romans 13. So let me just read this for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are are not, a terror, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So is this saying that bad government is God's idea? No. No, it's just saying God is sovereign, and he has mysterious purposes for every kind of government. He said, what are those purposes? Read Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. Write it down. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. That's where this is all going. 1 Timothy 2 says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, which is why we pray for the president and Supreme Court and Congress, the local state representatives, local state governors, so that we may leave, uh, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So because government is one of God's good gifts, 
the Bible highlights men and women who served in government, like Deborah, who was a judge, and like Joseph, who was like prime minister in Egypt, and like Daniel, who served a number of different corrupt kings in the government of Babylon, and like Nehemiah, who was a trusted official in Persia. And some of you have served or do serve or should serve in government in some way. And so I want to say to you something you probably have not heard. If you serve either locally or some kind of state, if you work for the post office or you're in the military or you're in the police uh, sheriffs, in some way you serve in government, I want to say to you, thank you. Thank you. Because you make it possible for us to live. And God calls you his servant. And God delegates to you some of his authority to bless those that you serve. You and I are citizens of what I believe is one of, if not the most wonderful country on the planet. We have freedoms that are scandalous in the minds of people all around the world. We have freedoms that people have died for that we might have. And one of those freedoms is the ability to participate in the whole political process, political activities for the glory of God. So Christians are to be good citizens. We're to pray for those who rule over us. We're not to cheat on our taxes. I heard about a letter that was written to the IRS, and a guy wrote, Dear Sir, my conscience bothers me. Here is the $750 which I owe on back taxes. P.S. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. <laughs> you may call it the infernal revenue service, the eternal revenue service, but the Bible is very clear. Christians are people who don't cheat on their taxes. We obey the laws. We respect government officials. And you go, what if they're not worthy of respect? Then we salute the uniform. We respect the position that they have. And we participate in the process, which means God in his grace has given us the ability to vote. And I hear people say, why bother? God's going to do what God's going to do. You know, you never find the sovereignty of God in Scripture as an excuse for inactivity. God works through people. His sovereignty is exercised through people. And it's a privilege that we have. And we're responsible for the stewardship of it. And say, well, what difference does one vote make? That has nothing to do with our fulfilling the responsibility we have as Christian citizens. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Salt stops corruption and decay. Light shines on the way to to go. And he calls us to be both of those in whatever sphere, whatever area that we're in. I think Christians should run for office. I think Christians should work for legislation. I think the Bible says we should most certainly vote. We should be good citizens. We may not agree with what the government does and its policies, but we are to submit to the government's authority. Number two, that was the longest one. Number two, Our duty to government is limited. Our duty to God is unlimited. It is comprehensive. The Bible sets limits to government. And if you ever have to choose between God and the government, we always go with God. We'll finally give an account to God, not not to government. And there are two times in the Bible where Christians are told to resist the authority of the government. One is when we are told to do something God tells us not to do. And we disobey, regardless of the consequences. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles are put on trial before 
Jewish authorities and they say, we must obey God rather than man. In other words, you have authority, but God has superior authority. Your authority is limited. We're going to follow God and we will give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we do it for the Lord's sake, not because he's the absolute authority. And we will not submit because you demand it. We submit for the Lord's sake. So that's the first reason. When we're told to do something God tells us not to do. Here's the second reason. When we're expected to violate our Christian conscience in order to submit to the government. I have a friend who, is, who sings opera in New York City at the Met. And there are some operas he will not perform because he's a committed Christian. I know a number of Christian doctors who will not perform abortions because they're Christians. And sometimes there's real consequences. Educators who will not be hiding about the fact that they are Christians. Jesus said, you follow me, you take up your cross. And the cross was a political instrument of a, a symbol of the authority of Rome. And so Jesus says, it may cost you. You just take up the cross, be willing to face the consequences. So we're expected to support and respect and obey the government, but there's a limit to our support. Number three, Christ first, party second. If you're a Christian, you are not primarily a Republican or a Democrat. Not first, not foremost. You're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, and then you're a Republican or a Democrat at a distant second. And that's a relief to some of us because we kind of feel homeless right now, politically speaking. We don't identify with either party. We, some of us would care about sanctity of life, but we're also concerned about the poor. We believe sex is limited to marriage between a man and a woman, but we also are concerned about racial justice. Some of us believe in a strong military, but we're also concerned about the environment and creation care. Some of us are concerned about the working poor, but we're also concerned about the economy. You kind of feel torn, and you should, because your allegiance is to Jesus, not a platform. Our ultimate allegiance is not to America. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are good citizens for Jesus' sake, but there are some issues where one party has it right and the other is wrong, and another party has it right and the other one is wrong, and there are some issues where both parties have it wrong. And by wrong, I mean a biblical position. And as Christians, we can, we can identify with a certain party, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green, whatever, Libertarian, but we never stand under a party. We stand above the party. We don't turn blind eyes to what Jesus clearly cares about. Martin Luther King once said this, Christians are not the masters of the state or the servants of the state. We are the conscience of the state. I can't presume to tell you who to vote for. I heard someone say it's like picking the lesser of two evils. And the reason it feels like that is there's no such thing as a perfect candidate. Unless it's Jesus on the ballot, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. That doesn't mean you overlook character. It doesn't mean all the... It just means every candidate is deeply flawed. So you have to choose. And it's not whether you're a Christian or not. Where do they stand on issues that are important to God? And what we have in Jesus is far more important than our political convictions. And, we, and I'll just say this, we must not let political convictions divide us Christian against Christian. 
Jesus had friends who were tax collectors and he had friends who were zealots and they were on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Matthew was a tax collector, which meant he worked for Rome. He sold his soul to Rome before he met Jesus. Simon was a zealot. He's always called a zealot in the Bible. And he was a freedom fighter who was against Rome. And they're both disciples, part of the disciple body with Jesus. And what that tells me is we need to be open to friendships and listening to people who think differently, who are Christians, biblical Christians, but they think differently than we do. We can't let politics divide us as Christians because what we have in common is Jesus. Number four, vote as a Christian, which is what so many do not do. You see, what we do is we compartmentalize our, our thinking. What I mean is this. We separate life into these compartments. Okay, there's my financial life, and, and there's my family, and there's my job, and, and there's the stock market, and, and there's Facebook. And what we think about one area never informs what we think about another area. Lifeway Research did a study after the last election cycle, 2016, and it found that one in 10 Christians said the Bible shaped their political views. Just one in 10 Christians. The vast majority said they were more influenced by their friends or by the media. So don't get me wrong. You can have two Christians who disagree about what the Bible, the policies, not the principles, but the policies that flesh out what the Bible says. But to have one in 10 Christians say, it's their faith that leads them to vote as they do. That is unacceptable. The Bible is so clear about the sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb. It's also very clear about God's concern for the poor. The Bible is so clear about marriage, the definition of marriage. What is a marriage? But it's also clear that Christians are to be those who serve the disadvantaged. It's just amazing how few Christians ever attempt to look at issues through the lens of the Scriptures. We just swallow the whole platform, left or right, uncritically. We put party ahead of Jesus. You know what the Bible says about the issues? The issues on the table right now, do you, do you know what the Bible teaches about those issues? Because you'll be evaluating who you vote for if you're a Christian you want to evaluate and make that decision based on what the Bible teaches, a biblical worldview. Because both parties are going to get some things right, both parties are going to get some things wrong, both of them are going to miss it altogether. We might differ on the way things flesh out with legislation and policy, but not on the values, not on the principles that are taught in Scripture. We can talk about how best to serve the poor, but we are called to serve the poor. We can talk about how best to preserve the sanctity of human life, but we have to preserve the sanctity of human life. We can talk about the best way to deal with racism, but we have to address that as Christians. We can talk about how best to encourage sexual morality, but we're called to do that. And the bottom line is this, be political, but be a Christian first. Last, can I hear an amen on that? Our peace our joy, our contentment do not hinge on a political platform or policy or leaders.
You say, we're in danger of losing some of our freedoms. That may be true. But even if we become citizens of a totalitarian, oppressive state, because we are Christians, we can still live with confidence and peace and joy. I have a friend, I talked to him yesterday. He's in Cuba. He's a Cuban pastor, which is a, I've been in Cuba. I was in Cuba 11 years ago. It's a communist state. He has very few freedoms, and he's one of the most joy-filled, confident Christians I know. So whatever happens in this election, you and I can live the abundant Christian life that God has called us to live because our faith is not in politics and it's not in any... Our country has needs that no presidential candidate can meet. No party can meet them. Only one. There's only... Presidents come and go. There's only one king who remains constant and he's not up for election. So regardless of who is elected, Jesus is in control. Let's pray. Lord, I for one marvel at your wisdom, how you took what was a a no-win question and used it to instruct us and teach us. So help us, Lord, be salt and light in this uh, crazy, broken time that we live in where there's so much toxicity and so much anger and so much fear. Help us, Lord, to discern what weighs heaviest in your mind of all the issues. Help us devote our Christian conscience, devote as Christians because the Bible has informed us. And make us, Lord, at least one group of people in this area, among many, make us one group who point to the only one who can redeem sin and restore health and life and change hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do this for the glory of Jesus and for the good of people you love. In Christ's name, amen.